Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mike Rosart Show live every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern. So today we're talking about, hang on a sec, I just need to refresh myself. Um, so today we're talking about landlording and we're talking about real estate investing and then we're gonna talk about the pivot into, or I guess the big picture is how does this all fit into your goal of reaching early retirement or in building your personal financial, um, I guess, journey towards FIRE or whatever your goal is from a personal finance standpoint, how real estate and landlording specifically fit into that. And I think that, I wanna clarify this, you can be a really good real estate investor and not be a landlord. Landlording is the worst type of job, business that I can think of. There's nothing worse than being a property manager, there's nothing worse than dealing with tenants, fighting with you know maintenance contractors, um, battling at the landlord-tenant board and dealing with all of the bullcrap that goes along with running property management as a landlord. And I'm, I'm I guess, separating the, the two, real estate investing and landlording. So for instance, I could buy a vacant property with no tenants in it, renovate the whole property, do it up really nice, and then sell it for a nice large profit. Basically a burr without the tenants involved and make way more money and have no headaches for the same amount of, or probably better return on investment and way better return on time than say buying a property with tenants, having to fight with the tenants. You know, all, that whole business model is flawed in that it requires a lot of time investment. And I don't have any more time to give to fight with tenants, to fight with the landlord tenant board, to fight with the city, to fight with the you know the zoning and the rental license people. To, it's just fighting all the time because almost all buildings are non-compliant in some form, shape, or manner. Something's wrong, some tenant's pissed off. There's always a fight, there's always drama. That is property management, especially when you're dealing with multifamily. There's always inter-tenant, inter-unit conflict that you're always trying to be a counselor to resolve. Um, and that's if the tenants pay rent on time. That's if they aren't trying to destroy your property. Uh, there's, there's maintenance schedules and there's so much that goes along with being a good landlord. And so I decided I can't be a good landlord and reach my goals of personal finance and spending time with my family in the same way that I'd like to. And so if you can't do a good job at it, don't do it. The thought is just outsource it. And then I go and outsource it and I found that of every property management company I've ever run across, uh, if they don't have an active stake in the property, they won't do a good enough job either. So then you're just managing the manager and you're like a landlord that's managing a property manager to manage your property. Again, same problem. Return on time is terrible. Return on capital, actually not that great. And I wanna dive into that in a minute too, uh, about comparing a rental property to private lending against real estate. You can invest in real estate fairly safely with an 80% loan to value mortgage against a property. So if the market corrects down 20%, you've not lost a dollar. It's actually safer than if you bought a property because if you bought a property, your money would be going towards down payment, in which case you would lose your entire 20% down payment in a correction or you wouldn't with private lending. So private lending, safer, lower risk. And I'm gonna argue in a second here, we're gonna go through the numbers. I did it before I, I, I shot this video. I just laying in upstairs on my phone. And uh, I'm thinking this through and I'm like, geez, the numbers do not support holding a rental property. They do support buying properties under value, turning them around and then selling the property, actually, believe it or not. There is almost no, in London, Ontario anyway, when I buy a 1% rule and properties are selling at half a percent rule at market value, it makes no sense to hold half a percent rule properties. So at market value, it makes no sense to hold real estate in London, Ontario. I've come to that conclusion. Now there are exceptions to that rule. There are a few properties that it makes sense to hold. I'm gonna still hold a few properties. You guys know I've been selling a lot. I've got a triplex off market coming. We've got two duplexes with solar panels on the roof and it's a really great turnkey uh, type property that's again coming on the market. We've got uh, a duplex that's hitting the market. We've got a fourplex in St. Thomas that's hitting the market. I've got a, a, a single family in uh, Mount Bridges that's hitting the market. We've got a whole bunch of properties that I'm disposing of. I'm going from a whole bunch of buildings down to very few buildings. I will keep a few properties. They will be completely outsourced. I have put in place some the best managers that I can find. Uh, I would argue that it's impossible to find a manager who's ever going to care about your property as much as you do, and so you have to run that in your numbers. Hey, they're gonna take an extra month to rent your property out. Hey, they're not gonna be able to collect rent as well as you are. Hey, the maintenance is gonna fall behind and things are gonna degrade faster and no one's gonna look after the property in the same way. 
And so it's a, and I'm gonna get all these questions in a second, but I just wanna get this sort of 10 minute rant off my, I don't make videos anymore on Saturdays. And so this is my chance to sort of make videos, right? And so this topic was one that was, you know, I've been passionate about for a while. And I thought, hey, I'm just gonna vent about this. And hopefully you learn something from this and say, hey, maybe I need to look critically at my own real estate portfolio and say, hey, maybe the properties I have in my portfolio make more sense to be sold. Uh, maybe the return on investment I'm getting from holding this rental property, once you factor in the value of your time, isn't worth holding. And maybe it is, I don't know. Maybe you can find a perfect property manager and maybe at the end of the day you've run the numbers and your numbers, if you've done them properly, do support better returns than say private lending. Um, private lending is a fantastic way, I think. Um, it's the end evolution for the real estate investor. Especially if you can private lend to make 12 to 15% is actually passively. Whereas with real estate investing, you're dealing bookkeeping, you're dealing with property managers, maintenance, if tenants take you to land their tenant board, you have to then hire a paralegal to go. There's just so much management. Even if you outsource everything, it's still a lot of energy. And it might not be a lot of energy for a while, but then something will pop up at the property, like a basement will flood, will flood or something. And there's all that liability that goes along with it. So risk to reward. And I think the risk in lending secured 75%, 80% loan to value is way less than owning a rental property. And that's just fact. Um, it is less risk and you have a better loan to value percentage, right? When you own your own property, you're 100% loan to value. Your money tops you up like a second mortgage almost. Your down payment is effectively like a second mortgage kind of, right? Because you're topping up the difference between what the bank is giving you and what you're paying for the property, plus whatever you put in for renovations, et cetera. So return on capital, ROC, or return on investment, ROI, that is a really important metric to look at in combination with return on time. And I think that what you'll see is that real estate is a great way to build wealth you can buy a bunch of properties in a series uh, under market value, unlock that value through the property. It's how I built a lot of my wealth. Uh, people don't know, but I actually bought a medical company a little over a year and a half ago. We engaged and I bought a company in Toronto. And I actually made more from that than I did from my entire landlording portfolio. So a lot of people think that I've made most of my money through landlording. And truth be told, when I run the numbers, when I look at all the battles I've had to have with tenants, the tenants I've had to pay off, the contractors I've had to pay off, the threats, the death threats that I've received, trying to run that business, trying to do all of that, and all of the stress, and I look at how much I've made, and I compare that to how much I've made flipping, how much I've made um, just burring real estate, buying real estate, owning it and turning it around, not the, not the tenant aspect, like the actual cash flow aspect, I've made a lot less than from the value add aspect and from the businesses that I've invested in. And the other things that I've done, by the way, I will put this caveat in that the real estate portfolio that I've held, it has appreciated a ton. I've gotten really, really lucky. I owned real estate at the right time. I do believe real estate over time just continues to go up, right? We're gonna see an average growth over time increasing in the coming years as the government forces interest rates down and prints more money to maintain low interest rates. What we'll see is the price of real estate will rise, but the value of your dollar will be eroded. And so, Basically, a $600,000 house would be the same as a $500,000 house. You'll feel like you made more in your real estate portfolio, but in reality, you've just lost the monetary buying power of the dollar. So we'll feel like the real estate market's rising, but in actuality, uh, all those ships are just rising together. Um, but anyway, my point, real estate, you can invest in real estate in lots of ways without landlording. And so myself personally, I will never give my phone number to a tenant ever again, full stop. And if a tenant calls me, I will, the number is blocked. They have a property manager contact that they need to get a hold of. I don't deal with tenants, period. Reason is I can't give the level of service that I believe is needed. And so I'm just not doing it. Plus I don't enjoy it. Not interested in fighting with tenants, collecting rents, none of that. It goes through a property manager. That's their role. I've hired them for that. They take the late calls. They handle the maintenance requests, et cetera, and so forth. My job is to manage the manager and eventually I want to put someone in place. I want to hire, I'm looking for the right person, but a personal assistant who will oversee all of my private lending contracts, who will oversee um, all of my property managers, all of the day-to-day -day operations of the and property managers are, you know, you don't have to check on them that much, but you know, once a week, you know, need someone to check in, right? And keep after them. But I want to hire someone and say in that role to be a personal executive assistant to run all that so that literally I'm doing not even managing the managers. I don't want to be attached to my properties. And there's a few reasons for that. One is liability. I have a public brand and for some reason, tenants don't like 
people like I'm fairly successful. And so they want to latch onto that and take where they can. And so as you become more wealthy and more successful, it's very difficult to be a good landlord. Um, and so I'm just, I'm done with it. I'm not saying that it's, it's bad. I'm just saying it's $20 an hour, $25 an hour, $30 an hour at best work. Being a landlord, that's what you get paid per hour. The real value is in unlocking, you know, through renovation or, or whatever plan you have, but unlocking the value of the property and then bringing that property to market or to refinance. That's where you make money in real estate. That's the burr. That's through cash flow investing over a five year period, looking at the numbers, even on all of my 1% real properties. Like I buy properties that are $500,000 that bring in 5,000 a month in rent minimum. That's been my benchmark on pretty much every deal I've ever done. Some of the properties I bought for 500,000 brand 8,000 a month in rent, 9,000 a month in rent. And believe it or not, over a five or 10 year period with all the tenant turnovers and the damages and the property managers have had to pay and the leasing fees and the, you know, the, the CapEx and all the crap that goes along with that. And they land the landlord tenant board and the times the tenants walk away and don't pay. After all of that, return on investment is like 18 to 20%. I was calculating 30%, but in real life, maintenance expenses higher, snow removal, grass removal, you know, the roof goes, running all those numbers at a, a higher rate. I think people should have a higher vacancy rate of like 7%. You should have, you know, maintenance expense that's probably double what you expect. Property management fees, double what you expect, et cetera, and so forth. All of those bad debt expense when tenants don't pay, all of that, you run all that in, you'll see that most of the, or at least a good percentage of the profit has come for me in buying a building for $500,000 and then fixing it up and realizing that it's gone from 500,000 in value to $800,000 in value. So a 1% real estate property. And so I'm on this pro these types of properties as an example. We'll walk through, let's do an example right now. So let's say I'm holding a property that I bought for $300,000, the rent's for three grand a month. In this market right now, I should be able to sell it for 400, 450. So it makes no sense to hold it. Every time I, I look at a property, once I've you know stabilized it, as in I've fixed whatever's wrong with it, made it so that it's a top marketable property, and then got you know great rents or put on Airbnb or whatever strategy I'm using at that time to generate income, I get to that point, and then it's easily saleable to an investor who wants to come in, and most investors in this market are happy with an eight cap rate. So they're happy with an 8%, and that's like really good in London, by the way, an 8%, seven to 8% return on their capital, right? And so now that maybe levered up, they can get you know 30% or something. But what I'm seeing is that the most of the cap rates run by real estate agents and property managers are not conservative enough. They don't have high enough property management fees, high enough vacancy rates, high enough um, maintenance you know, budgets, high enough CapEx budgets, all of this kind of stuff, right? So it comes down to, at the end of the day, uh, for me, a decision from a lifestyle perspective that I don't wanna be a landlord. I'm, I'm getting out of that business. I'm not interested in it. I will still do flips. I will still hold a, uh, several properties. One thing I do love about real estate is the tax advantage of it. So you can hold real estate and theoretically make no, I've had properties in their first one year or two years where I'm turning tenants over or where I have a vacant unit that's renovated for a whole year where there's huge losses. And real estate helped me defer taxes in a, in a big way. When you buy a building, the first year it never cash flows, ever. There's always vacancy when you're renovating it, turning it around. How do you, you, you can't cash flow when it was vacant for the six months that you're renovating it. So for that calendar year, you'll have large losses. The utility bills are still going, the mortgage is going, taxes, et cetera. All those expenses are still being incurred, but there's no revenue coming in until you stabilize the property. And in some cases, it could take a year. The city gets involved and you have to get a permit and you're fighting with the, you know, the, the drawings and then the city inspector comes in and says, hey, I want you to fireproof these five walls. I'll come back in five weeks. Your renovation could be delayed for months and months and months. And it could end up being a whole year project if you have tenants that, you know, for instance, that you thought would leave, but then they refused to leave. Uh, they had agreed orally to you or they signed something that said that they would leave and then they renege on that and you end up having to pay them thousands of dollars to leave so you can get in there and renovate and fix the property up because it's a dilapidated piece of junk. In most cases, if you're buying under value, that's what you're buying um, is a piece of junk that you're trying to turn around. And the hope is that in turning that around, you make some money. And usually you do, that's the idea. But in the first year or two, you will have a period of no cash flow. So it's very common in the first two years to have negative cash flow. Guess what? If you're working a full-time day job, there's some, some intense benefits of getting that write-off against your day job. You could offset so your day job has no tax burden. For, there was a year where I worked a $55,000 salary and paid no tax, got a credit back because my rental portfolio at that time was all being turned around. I was renovating and I had a lot of vacancies. I was adding value. And you don't pay tax on the value added to your real estate portfolio until you sell. 
And so if you just refinance or you're holding the property, there's no tax implication. You bought a property for 200, it's worth 400, you pull out 100,000 from a refinance and there is no tax burden associated. So what I will say is this, for building wealth and from a tax advantage perspective, buying property and renovating it and then you know eventually cash flowing it, that is a good strategy to make a lot of money. Once you've built some wealth, stop landlording. It's low value. You should move your wealth so that your money works for you. If you have a lot of money, put your money to work. If you have a million dollars, let's say, a million dollars lent out at 12% is what? $10,000 a month, something like that. So a percent a month is $10,000 a month. So if you have a million bucks in equity in your properties right now, and you're not net netting over 10 grand a month after all your expenses, you should just be doing lending. You're getting, in a lot of cases, the cash flow from a real estate portfolio with a lot of equity in all these properties, because again, you can't refinance that or it's trapped, it's you know appreciation that's trapped in there or value add that's trapped in the properties. Often the return on investment is less than 12% before appreciation. And I don't know where the market's going. I'm not investing strictly for appreciation. I have a few properties that I hold that I think are you know good appreciation plays, but they have to at least be covering themselves. I'm looking for you know positive cash flow at a minimum and then the appreciation being a sweetener. But anyway, so for my net worth personally, I'm looking to, it's from a lifestyle perspective as well, not do any more landlording. And I hope that people will critically analyze their, their portfolio and say, hey, um, you know, maybe the math doesn't make sense. Like there's a lot of people I talk to, I had a guy reach out to me, he had five properties and I think the mortgages on them were like, 30%, 40% of the value of the property. So he had like $400,000 house with a $150,000 mortgage. And he had like a $500,000 house with a $250,000 mortgage. Cause he'd been paying down the mortgages over the last couple of years. He hadn't refinanced them. He'd done a little bit of renovation here and there and they depreciated in a big way. And that's a very common real estate portfolio for someone who's had a few properties for a few years. And so he had well over a million dollars in equity and looking at that and saying, you know, he was like, hey, I'm making a couple of my properties break even, a couple of them make a thousand bucks a month. He's looking at his portfolio and making a few thousand dollars a month. And he's like, how can I get more cash flow? And I'm looking at that and I'm like, geez, if you just sold all your properties and did like lending, just went and found a mortgage broker and said, hey, I have all this money. I wanna lend out. Can you find me some people, some flippers, whatever, who want a mortgage? And what you'd find is that he, his return would be, again, on, on the amount of money he had, it was like $15,000 a month, just lent out to, uh, just, just lent out to you know, various flippers or people who are looking for, for mortgages. Um, yeah, so anyway, we're gonna the question and answer. I see lots of questions popping up here, so I'll kind of jump into that. But anyway, the point being that I, I can't believe how many times people don't critically analyze their own current holdings and say, hey, um, this property doesn't make sense. I shouldn't hold it anymore. Or this property, I need to refinance it right now or I need to sell it. And in almost all the cases, you've had a property for more than a year in this market in Ontario, the answer is refinance it or sell it. If you're not willing to refinance the equity out of it, sell it. Um, so that's basically where we're at right now. Um, I do believe in having like probably what I'll, my end end game is like maybe six, seven properties in my name, six, seven properties put into my wife's name. So together we'll have like, you know, 14 properties or something. Again, not being at all, managed by me in any way. Tenants don't even know that I own the properties. That's ideal. Uh, and the property managers are taking care of everything and then a personal assistant to manage uh, the property managers. I don't wanna be involved at all. And then the rest of my net worth into lending, into my you know buying businesses, private businesses, into you know stock investing and diversifying my wealth. The end end game is to not be accountable. You don't wanna be accountable. You don't wanna to have to employ contractors. You don't wanna to have to fight with tenants. People in the bottom of society want to take people to the top now more than ever. And so it's something we need to be cautious of as we build wealth, as we build our, our fire plans, there'll be those trying to undermine us. And it just so happens that on average, tenants are the lowest class of society. They can't afford to own. And there are exceptions. Like I have some great tenants that could afford to buy and don't because you know they're a master's student and in two years they're gonna move. But by and large, that's the groups looking to attack. And in Ontario, the landlord tenant board governed by the rules written in the residential tenancy act are written to fuck landlords, <laughs> excuse my French, um, are written in a way that the landlord has very little rights. If a tenant stops paying rent, it can take almost a year to get them out. Not if they don't even try to make payments. If they you know, pay a few hundred bucks here and there, it could take years. They could stretch it out on payment plans. I've seen 15 months, 18 months, uh, tenants assaulting landlords and then the landlord having to pay, uh, not the tenant, because the tenant has nothing and it's free for them to apply to the board. So it's just, 
the current climate, I'm gonna vote with my wallet and say, it is broken for landlords. Get on Airbnb where you have some rights. Um, get onto the short-term rental bandwagon or get out and vote with our wallets where there is, there are rights. And I think flipping is a great one where you can still make great money if you wanna put the time in. Myself personally, I'll probably still do the odd flips with my mentees, but like I'm not interested in active real estate investing to the same extent that I was before. Um, to make 50 grand for a bunch of my time and stress isn't a good proposition anymore. I used to be so happy to make 50 or 100 grand from doing a flip. Now to me, it's like my passive income is so high, I don't need that, that supplemental extra income and I'm looking to get time back, time for my family, time for, so that's what I've been focused on guys, just kind of airing out what's been going on for me. Um, I've been focused on getting rid of properties and paring down and removing, you know, I had a lot of joint venture partnerships where it just doesn't make sense anymore, where we have equity in the property and it makes sense to get it out because I could just private lend it and make more than I'm making by being the JV partner on this deal. So in a lot of cases, it can make sense to sell. And so that's what we're doing. If you wanna buy some properties, if you're in the beginning phase of your journey where you're trying to build wealth, then have I got some cash flowing 1% rule type properties for you? If I got some turnkey stuff that's super solid that we've spent a lot of money fixing up, uh, I'm just tired, I'm just done with it. But for those people who've got the energy, like 10 years ago, I would have been all over this, right? Just coming up, I'm just about turning 18. I was in my first year at Western, getting excited about real estate. I would have been all over this. I would have jumped on and said, hey, is there a landlord out there that I can manage their property for them that I could take 25% of profit, let's say. Like that was something that I would have loved. I wish there was a landlord out there back then when I was 18 and said, hey, Mike, I'll give you a quarter of the cap, a quarter of the operating cash flow, so 25% profit sharing, if you manage the property, take care of all headaches. I would have jumped on that opportunity jumped on it, right? So that's that's something that I'm looking, I'm looking to be the person that's just got his cap, my capital working for me and I'm enjoying time with family. So anyway, let's get to the Q&A because there's some solid questions here and I just ignored them while I ranted. Hey Cindy, good to see you on. No more landlording, MeZZ says. What did I miss? What did you miss? I'm tired. I'm going to landlord tenant board for the last time I was, it's actually on a property I don't own but that I helped an investor manage. So I was like property manager on it. And I managed it for like a month and a half and, and it's a long story, but I got that case and I'm just, that for me was like the cherry on top where I'm like, I'm done with this. I'm done opening myself up to the liability of servicing tenants. Property managers are held to a very high standard, so are landlords, where, you know, for instance, if, you don't, if you're on a vacation at your cottage and you don't respond to a request of a tenant in 24 hours, you, you can be liable for damages. So like, you're basically a slave to your tenant at all times. And by the way, if your property manager doesn't respond, you're still liable as the landlord. It's expected that you've hired a property manager and they're adequate. And if they're not adequate, it comes back on you still. Liability is still on you as the owner. So if your property manager's on vacation for the weekend, doesn't respond to his phone, guess what, you're liable. Tenant can take you to the landlord tenant board. The, the environment is not favorable for landlords right now. So I'm just, I'm just ranting because I'm frustrated. 20 years ago, Landlords could kick tenants out that weren't paying rent. You know, 20 years ago, if we want to get in and renovate a property, we can get in there and just, you know, tenant would be gone. They didn't have the same rights they do today. Now it's like, in some cases, landlords are literally subsidizing the living costs of tenants that they can never remove. So their tenants paying less than the mortgage, property taxes, maintenance, and insurance. They're literally losing money every month and they can't get the tenant out. They offer them 10 grand, tenant still doesn't want to leave. And there are situations where the tenant literally, it's as if they own the property. They can't sell the property because who wants to buy a property with you know, super low rents and no cash flow? So then this landlord stuck with this property, has no rights, and is just a slave working for the tenant for nothing. As in like less than minimum wage. Where's, where's the landlord's rights here? So anyway, I'm just, that's what I'm ranting about is ah, lately I've seen a lot of that going on and it's just not right. Yo, need to make more income. Antoine, if you need to make more income, then there's lots of ways to do that. Lots of side hustles you can pick up. Real estate investing and landlording and property management, when you're getting started on your journey, can be a great way to earn money. It's stressful. It's a pain in the ass. Your phone rings all the time. Tenants are calling you and texting you. And it's always a battle. It's always like landlord versus tenant. I wish it was more cooperative, but it always feels like tenant wants this fixed now. These 10 things fixed now. And like five of them are reasonable. And so you'll do those five things. And then three of them are just like unreasonable requests that you can't ever grant. And then there's the fact that like they just don't pay rent sometimes and they still want, right? Like they'll apply to the board and it's just, I'm just tired of the fighting. And I feel bad for all the landlords out there who are struggling right now because the RTA, Residential Tenancy Act, is not in our favor. It's written right now. It's getting a lot like California where, you know, there's some tenants that pass tenancies on, right? There's rent control rules in place that 
it's just, it's just getting crazy. Um, so I'm still all about the student rentals. I'm still all about the Airbnb. But again, I'm not involved. Property manager comes in, does all the leasing, does all the tenant placings, all the managing. I'm not involved. Now, hopefully I have enough people in place that things move smoothly without my involvement, but it's still gonna require me to go buy the property on a monthly basis or a, a bi-monthly basis and check on things. That's a level of work that I'm willing to accept right now. But I, as I get wealthier and wealthier, I'm less interested in doing that. Um, so that's what I realized is as you get wealthier and wealthier, you don't want to deal with those lower value aspects. And so that's something that's just a shift. It's just kind of happened. Um, and I'm sure it's been partly fueled by the fact that I've sort of you know, built a YouTube channel and brand that, that makes me a, a target, I'm a public target. And so I've been the target of a few uh, tenant groups and I'm just done. Like I don't want to be the target of tenant hate groups. They're, I'm just tired of it. There was a tenant hate group that was like attacking me personally. And there was some, a lot of slander going on. What am I gonna do? They're, they're bums on Facebook with no money. You can't sue them. They have nothing to lose. Uh, they're just out there throwing hate speech around. And it's, um, I don't wanna be the big time landlord that's, the, that's got the crosshairs set on them by the tenant groups. And I'm just, I'm just tired of it. So for all the people out there who are struggling right now with being a landlord, it's tough. And I'm here for you guys. There are ways to maneuver through this. And I think what you'll see is that private lending may be a better overall strategy from a return on investment perspective. Buy the property still, that's a great deal off market. Turn it around, fix it up, but instead of keeping it and refinancing it, burr, but then the last R instead of refinance, S, sell at the end, right? Hold it for a year or two, get a little cash flow out of it. But you might realize the analysis looks to burrs, sell at the end of the day. Take that six-figure equity you've created in that property and go private lend it. Now you got $1,500 a month passive income from one property. No stress, no headaches, less risk. Because again, you're lent out at a lower loan to value than if the money was stuck in the property. <coughs> property. For the 74 people who are just on, smash that like button if you're going through this right now and um, share with me what you're doing, dealing with. Another 10 minutes, I'm gonna do a rapid fire of live Q&A. Let's do it. William, good to see you on as well. Thank you for the comment. Jonathan says, hey Mike, how's it going? It's going good, actually. I'm feeling really good about the plans I have for the next three or four months to get out of landlording and shift my wealth into more passive means of earning. That doesn't mean that I won't still buy real estate. It doesn't mean that I won't still, as a realtor, be involved in a ton of deals and helping people out. I will probably still be involved in buying the odd properties and turning them around. If the opportunity presents itself, I'm all over it. That said, I'm not interested in the day-to-day. -day. I'm not interested in being a landlord. I'm interested in being an investor. Hi Mike, first time tuning in live as opposed to watching the replays. Content is super valuable, thank you. Thank you Mario, appreciate the comment. Ruben says, hi Mike, can you please give me more details on private lending? What is the minimum amount of minimum term and interest rate? Ruben, it's so flexible. You could lend your best friend $5,000 on a promissory note, right? That's an example of private lending. It's the least safe, it's the most risky, but that is one way you could lend out and whatever they needed, that would be the minimum amount, right? And I guess, what is it worth your time to do up the agreements? For myself, I would never lend less than probably $75,000 in a go. It's just not worth my time to write up a loan agreement, et cetera and so forth, go to the bank, get the bank draft. I just wouldn't do it for probably less than 100 grand, it wouldn't make sense. So that's just where I'm at. But I remember people getting started that I talked to who were lending 10, 15, $20,000, even $50,000 to a friend, making 500 bucks a month passive income. They've secured it against their friend's house or whatever. That's a great way to get started in it. Talk to a mortgage broker. They'll they'll line you up with people who are flipping properties or whatever, and it's cheaper for them to get an open, if you give them an open six month mortgage, I'll say. You say, hey, I'm gonna secure first secure position on this flip you're doing. I'll go 70% loan to value. So if you screw it up, I'll take the property from you and you know, you'll you'll lose your 30% down payment, but you know, I'll be I'll be made whole, I'll be safe. Now I'll charge you 12% interest. The flipper's all over that. 12%, they're like, yes, hell yeah, let's go. If they went and got an A-lender mortgage with the bank at 2.79%, guess what? When they sell the property in six months, their breakout fees are 15 grand. It's cheaper for them to pay you 12 to 15% interest than it is to take the A-lender mortgage and pay a breakout penalty. Because there are a lot of huge breakout penalties built into those really attractive, sexy rates. And so the flipper or the guy who's looking to hold short term or the guy who's looking to flip it to his wife or flip it to his friend, and maybe they're just keeping the property within their, you know, they're just gonna change title a little bit then it makes sense to have an open product. And so lending can be a fantastic way to get great returns. And I don't like lending to businesses as much as I do like lending to real estate. I do have loans, I have a couple hundred thousand out lending to businesses right now. And you can get a general GSA, general security of assets. And if the business has decent assets, then I guess you're sort of secured in that way. 
but it is more risky than say lending against real estate 75% loan to value, let's say. But great question. Uh, there is an easy way to get started, just start reading about it. Start talking to mortgage brokers who syndicate this kind of stuff. Now I'm not licensed, so I can't, you know, I can't put anyone's money to work. I could, you know, I can borrow someone's money against my own rental properties and lever them up, and then I can do my own personal lending on the side, but I'm unlicensed, so I can't syndicate people's mortgages or put together two people to borrow. That's not something I can do. What I can say is talk to a licensed mortgage broker who can help you with that. I think it's a great way to invest your wealth and to build that passive income. And I mean, truly passive income. And you know, if you use some of the cool stuff you can do with your registered accounts, like your RRSP and your TFSA, in your TIFSA or your TFSA, you can do a structured second mortgage at 29%. And so you can grow your TFSA tax-free savings account here in Canada to like half a million or a million bucks pretty quick, like in a 10 year period. So that's where it's really attractive where you can do some secured um, lending within your registered retirement plans. That's something most people didn't know they could do. Didn't know they could lend out mortgages with their RSPs. Thought they had to buy mutual funds and stocks. They don't have to. So you can have that as part of your portfolio. Uh, it's pretty, pretty great. Um, where can I find a property sale list or are you going to post on IG? So I do post on Instagram. I have been posting this week some of the properties that are listed. Um, MLS, they'll be hitting the realtor.ca pretty soon, so you can look on there. Um, yeah, just keep an eye on my Instagram feed. I'll continue to post. You look at my saved real estate deals, you'll see some of the stuff that I've been posting. But yeah, I've got stuff that's been hitting the market. We have a triplex right now. Anyone who's interested right now, free pitch. Uh, I got a triplex, 514 Egerton Street. It is a uh, upstairs, it's a one plus one, main floor, one plus one, two bed, and then kind of a walk-up basement apartment, so one bedroom. And there's a detached garage. It's right by the factory. If anyone knows the, the new factory building in East London there where they've got the big theme park going on, indoor theme park. Great Airbnb spot. Uh, we're looking to sell it for 399. It's close to 1% rule. So I think the main floor is paying, don't quote me on this, but between 1,050 to 1,200. Upstairs vacant, lower vacant, but you can easily rent the lower for you know 1,100 bucks and upstairs apartment for like 1,200 bucks for a one plus one bedroom. Uh, it's got parking in the back, which is great. Uh, backyard's kind of paved into parking. And then the garage for you know, 150 bucks a month. You're looking at you know, really good rental prospect. Someone could make a decent return. There's probably still a bit of a lift. If you did a bit of renovation, you'd get, get a bit of equity lift. We didn't finish. Like Renovations are finished, habitable, but like the finishes are not high end. So you could go in there and do some nicer finishes. And there'd be a ton of equity, as an example, on, on that deal right there. You could probably have that in high 300s. Someone could reach out right now and do a private deal. Maybe I'd even be willing to do a cash back deal where, you know, on closing, I'd be willing to, to fund some of your renovations. You want to do some cool creative renovations to it. After close, I do a cash back of some sort. That's where you can get creative with the private deals and get a lower percentage down. So there's an example right there. Like I just pitched a live deal. People reach out to me on Instagram. I could pitch that kind of stuff. So if you're looking for a cash back deal, looking for something like, uh, oh, I just saw a super chat come up. Hey Mike, what would you do? Let's see. Rented one of my properties to two unrelated people that would share the house and split the rent. They're both on one lease. They've been paying on time. Lately, they've been annoying me by calling me to complain about the other person over the smallest, stupidest things. Again, tenant conflict, very common as landlord. It's gotten to the point that I just want to get rid of them and rent to a normal family. What do you do? Okay, so what do you do? That's tough. I guess the first, you have to talk to a paralegal. There's some really good paralegals out there who can structure some really cool things. Probably the easiest thing, if they're paying their rent on time, go talk to them and say, hey, um, you guys are having tenant conflicts. Maybe we find you another place where you guys can each move in separately. You don't need to share one house. Talk to the tenant, have a reasonable conversation. These are the types of conversations that I used to be really good at, that I'm probably still pretty good at, but don't enjoy, like hate it. But that's what you have to do. You have to go there and to talk to them. And it sucks, I know. Um, it's, a, it's a tough one. There's no, like, unless you're gonna, I'll give you an example where you could do a reno eviction. So a reno eviction would be where you serve them the right, I think it's N13, you serve them the N13 and you give them time to move out and then you substantially change the unit. So if it was a single family house, you duplex it, secondary dwelling unit it. You make it into two units. It's not the same unit that it was before. They don't have the right to move back in at the same rent because you've now made it from one house into you know two units. Now the tenant doesn't have the right to move back in. You can actually lawfully kick them out using that. That's one way, reno eviction. It's expensive, it's not ideal. It requires a lot of your time to get in there and renovate the unit. Maybe you didn't want to do that. Maybe you just wanted to leave the house as it was. In which case, the easiest way is get an N11 signed. And mutually, the two of you guys, the tenant and landlord, agree for them to move out at a set date. And you say, hey, let's, 
you know, in four months, why don't you just go find a new place? Maybe you have to help them find a new place. It's probably a lot of counseling, a lot of managing, but that is the way um, to solve that issue. That's probably the easiest way I can think of. Um, and Antoine says 64K to 1 million in 10 years. So run the math on me. If you're doing, let's say you get a 30% second mortgage and you could do 30% second mortgage, no problem. Maybe you give them a first mortgage from your RSP at 4% and then you, on the same property, you throw them a second mortgage at 30%. So their average rate of interest is maybe like 15%. Now run the numbers, no problem, lots. Happy to help. Thank you for the super chat, appreciate it. Um, you know, their, their numbers might be all right. The flipper's like, hey, this makes sense. Uh, they're paying a 30% rate. So at the year, end of year one, what's 30% on, on 70 grand? My TFSA has 75 grand in it. So on 70 grand, you've got uh, 20,000, almost 100,000. Then end of year two, your 100,000 turns into 130,000. End of year three, it's at uh, what 165,000. Then you're in the 200,000. Then you're at like 250. Then you're at like 300. So maybe it's like, it gets, fa it gets faster though, it starts to snowball, right? Because 30% of 300 is $90,000, right? So now you're at 390. And then on 400,000, 30% of that is uh, 120,000, right? So your growth became faster and faster. You're getting close now, you're half a million bucks. And we're what, I think we're six years in? So maybe it's 12 years, I don't know, the rough math. But yeah, you get the TFSA to a huge number really, really quick. And maybe you just gotta lend it to a friend to get that TFSA up to that level, right? Maybe you have to make a deal, say, hey, I'll give you a first mortgage open with my funds at 3%, but the deal is the second mortgage is at 30%. It's in a riskier position, or you do a third mortgage. Say this third mortgage, my TFSA through say Olympia Trust is at you know 30%. And so your TFSA starts getting huge quick and you're basically sheltering all of the, the room and the gains for the future. That's where you have a really good accountant, a really good financial planner, they'll help you build a cool strategy where you're in early retirement and you're making 100 grand a year as a couple, a little bit more than that, 150 grand a year as a couple, paying no tax. Canadian eligible dividends, $50,000 per person in a couple, completely tax-free if you're investing in Canadian companies and Canadian eligible dividends. I'm talking Bank of Montreal, TD, I'm talking anything on the Toronto Stock Exchange, pretty much, that pays a dividend. Uh, Rogers, you know, utility companies, all those companies pay six, 7% dividends. That's a great strategy for early retirement where you don't need to own any real estate. You just selling off, put your money into, you know, st structured smart funds, you pay no taxes, enjoy a six figure living. It's fire, it's a good place to fire um, here in Canada. Ooh, another super chat from William, thank you, $20. Mike says, or he says, Mike, how to roof question above, sandwich money, T-Y. Thank you for the sandwich money, I much appreciate it. Uh, I will just try to find William's question because if you super chat, your question gets prioritized. I'm gonna go to the, I'm gonna go to the local. There's a place near my house called Abe's Sub Shop. They make the best subs. They're pretty expensive, like 15 bucks, but they're so good. But it's mindset, guys. Okay, do I see William's question here? I think I scrolled too quick. I didn't see it. Okay, William says, Mike, have to replace a roof in Detroit. Any recommendations or thoughts are greatly appreciated. So, William, it depends, I guess, on what kind of roof you're replacing. So, um, we talk about replacing roofs, it depends if it's a flat roof or a pitched roof or you know what you're doing with it. If it's a flat roof, in some cases it makes, it's actually cheaper to just patch the roof than it is to fully replace it. So that'd be the first thing I would say is like, can the roof be rehabilitated in some way to save a bit of money? And if the answer is no, then Max, good to see you on buddy. Still flipping cars, life's still good? Haven't chatted with you in a while. So we're talking about uh, the roofs right now. And so I'll answer William's question because he's super chatted 20 bucks. That's the least I could do is, is offer some value. William, in the comments, give me some more clarity on the roof situation. So what kind of roof are we dealing with? Is it a commercial property, residential property? Are we talking huge roof? Just part of the roof is bad? Because in some cases you can get away with replacing part of the roof and that might be the fix that you need, right? But I, it's up to your own, I guess, uh, standards of risk. You could find a couple of good roofing companies and ask you know their guys on the weekend to come for cash and do a job, right? If you, for instance, you go buy, I did this before, I bought the materials from a local uh, supplier, had them delivered to site, so they were there on a skid. I said, look guys, you don't have to get any materials, you just come here this weekend, Saturday, Sunday, cash, beers and pizza, and I'll give you, a, you know, a thousand bucks, and two guys come there and they'll put the roof on in you know a weekend. So that's where like if you were, I guess the old Mike would have done that. The new Mike is like too, 
I guess I value my time too much that I don't want to go and order materials, go on site and babysit these guys. Cause to get that good deal, I got to go there with a boom box and pizza and beers and I got to have the materials there. I got to keep the energy up. I've got to be there babysitting them. Right? So, okay, here we go. So three story house, 3000 square feet. Ouch. The problem with when you get the three story and above is that you're at such heights that you often need scaffolding to fix any side repair. I don't know how it's pitched, but um, depending how, sorry about that guys, got a call. Um, yeah, so depending on how the, how the pitch is, depending on you know what, what the roof looks like, it could make sense where it could be a weekend job. 3,000 square feet sounds like if you had a, maybe three, four guys, you'd be able to get that on the weekend. It depends on the extent of it too. I don't know if, usually the south side of the roof facing is you know degrading quicker than than the other. Um, something not cheap out in, in Detroit would be ice and water shield. Relatively cheap product. I recommend it strongly in, along the, the valleys and the and the areas where, I don't know how the roof's framed, but I have to see it. Um, but at the end of the day, I feel like that's probably the best way to get the roof done is on the cheap. Um, it's just find some guys who are really good roofers, work for a reputable company, and they do roofs all day long, like they're good at what they do, and then get them to come you know, on the weekend and do something like that. That would be probably the cheapest way to get your roof fixed. Interesting aside about roofs, just while I'm on this tangent, uh, metal roofs, fantastic. I love metal roofs over asphalt shingle roofs. The beautiful thing about the nice metal roofs that they have is uh, you're able to take, what? Oh, someone keep texting me. Um, this is again, why I don't want to do any landlording anymore. In this case, it's the contractor, it's not landlording. But again, I don't want to do that. I don't even want to be, having employees means that you're accountable. You're accountable to your employees. If you have tenants, you're accountable to your tenants. The goal is to be accountable to no one, just have your money make money for you. That's the end state. That's the, that's the final form. We're looking at like Pokemon. That's the final evolution. That's where you got to get to. Uh, and we have to deal with all the crap to get to that point. Uh, but once you're there, then it's not so bad. But back to roofs. The beautiful thing about, imagine in Detroit, I imagine people have saved money by putting a second layer of shingles over the first layer. Very common, cheap way to avoid doing demo. Like, you know, the, the demolition of removing the old roof. In a lot of cases, the proper way to do it is to take it all back to the plywood, replace any of the bad plywood, lay down the new, uh, you know, felt paper and the new uh, ice and water and all that. But a lot of people cheap out and just throw a second layer of shingles over the first layer. Very common in old properties. Three-story property sounds like it's an old building. I'm just guessing. I don't know. But William, if, you know, just to give you some more value for the, the 20 bucks, you could find that the cost of getting a bin and the cost of removing, say, two layers of roof shingles could be a couple thousand dollars just to remove what's there. Metal roofs, you strap over what's there, you throw strapping up, and you put the metal roof right over top. It, it breathes right over the existing roof. Watertight, 50-year warranties. Now, a metal roof, it's coming down in price because so many people are putting metal roofs on now. And the cost of, I guess for some reason, the cost of metal roofing has just come down uh, versus the asphalt shingle. So I'm seeing quotes about 30% higher for metal roofs, but there's no demolition. So there's no removing of the old roof and et cetera and so forth. So you're able to get a metal roof on in some cases for the same cost with a 50 year warranty because you don't have to remove any of the old roofing. You just go right over top, you strap it all, you put the new metal roof right over top and get some extra insulation value. It's not a lot, but maybe a couple of R points. So you get a little bit more efficiency from, a, um, from that standpoint. So if you do have an old roof that has terrible shingles, you could actually have a quote from a good metal company to put a metal roof on for cheaper. And they have some really cool metal roofs that they look like shingled roofs, they have some that look like slate. There's some cool ways you can do it. You can just get a basic metal roof, whatever. If it's a rental property, you probably just put a basic metal roof. It'll help the resale value. Everyone loves a nice metal roof. They got 50 year warranties and uh, it'll save you some money on no demolition of removing the old roof. So hopefully that added some value for you there. Nice, cars and bikes. Awesome, shifting into courses to teach others. You know what they say, Max, and I found the same thing. It's, and I don't have any courses that I'm selling right now, but I've, I've thought about the idea, I've noodled about it, but it's actually more profitable for some reason in the real estate industry, once you become an expert, to coach others and sell courses to teach others how to do what you've done than it is to actually do it. Like I physically can only do so many flips in a year, but this courses idea, you can scale unlimited. I could sell courses at $1,000 a pop, teaching people how to flip well, or how to you know burn properties, et cetera, and so forth. And when I burn it myself, I make 50 grand, but that's so much work, it's easy to make, a course and then sell it a thousand times and make infinitely more money. So I see a lot of people who are good doers, good operators, shifting into the teaching space only because 
they do what pays the best, right? People vote with their time with their wallet. It, it aligns, right? People do what they are paid well to do. Have you considered virtual personal assistance to manage messages coming in and admin work? Dennis, yes. I actually had a, I had a virtual assistant from, um, geez, where was it? Um, the currency was collapsing. I'm having a brain fart right now. Venezuela. Venezuela. Sorry, guys. I had a personal assistant from Venezuela. He was a licensed CPA. And he worked for me for $3 US an hour. And he was doing some of our bookkeeping. And he was doing a whole bunch of other stuff for us there. The challenge is the time it takes to train the VA to do things properly. And then because you're paying them so little, I mean, I guess our money goes so far that, that I wasn't paying them little. I was paying them an average wage. Like what they would actually, he was making for like KPMG. I was paying his same salary because in Venezuela, they pay like garbage, right? KPMG is paying garbage there. And uh, the problem is there were some errors and issues and tele, you know, telecommuting and trying to explain things virtually was a difficult um, process. And I found that at least in the first six months of the trial that I did it, it took more time than just doing it myself. And that's the challenge in trying to build systems. Initially, it takes more time than doing it yourself. And that's the hard part that I wrestled with. But yeah, I should probably train someone virtually who can do loan agreements, who can you know, do bookkeeping and basic stuff like that and have them be the point of contact as opposed to me. That's smart. And then that she had a new phone number. <laughs> okay. Oh, I'm 46 minutes in. Geez, that went quick, eh? That was a quick stream. Uh, ooh, a philosophical question. Don't mind if I do. Varun says, Mike, a bit of a philosophical question, but with everything you've said, would you change anything you did in terms of building wealth? If you had to start over, would you still go the landlording route? Varun, I think that initially, yes. Real estate allowed me to leverage my existing salary to make more money. At the time, I was making 55 grand a year, which is like the hours I was working, it's like $25 an hour or less. Something like 25 bucks an hour. Landlording work is about $25 to $30 an hour. So I was happy to make exactly what I was making my you know, well-paying day job on the side. And initially, I could also get the bonus of cash flow, right? Appreciation and a little bit of extra cash flow, more than just the $25, $30 an hour I was making doing a landlording job. So there's a sweetener associated with landlording, and that is the value add and the appreciation. And so I used my salary to go borrow a couple of million dollars. I convinced the big A lender banks to lend me, I think I had like 11 mortgages uh, before I quit my job. And so 11 mortgages, a couple of million bucks in real estate, when the market appreciates 3%, because I'm levered five to one, that's a 15% jump on my money. So I was happy to take, real estate was the only way that anyone was ever gonna give. And at the time I was, my first property I was 19, my second one I was 21. I think my third one I was 22. And at the time, no one was giving me any money, especially not the bank. But when I go there and say, hey, I have this great property that needs to be renovated, that has great cash flow, and I can make 50 grand fixing it up, the bank's like drooling. They're all over you know, lending for real estate. But if I come to them with a business idea, no chance. So I think it gave me the credibility to build my first million. It didn't take me, like I've made a lot of money investing in businesses and doing other things and you know, stock investing, et cetera, but it gave me a good base. And I think to this day, I have no regrets investing in real estate. It's a fantastic way to build wealth. It is stressful like any other business that you're gonna get involved in. But the returns are fantastic. And I think if I would've done things differently, I probably would've never done all the JV partnerships that I did. I gave away a lot. Like there were some JVs where I took 25% and I gave 75% away. And I left seven figures on the table partnering with everyone over the last two years. And I should've done less deals with no partners and I should've outsourced everything. Property, good property managers from day one, good systems, good contractors, all of that, less of me doing it and more of me managing it. That's where I slowed down and bogged down and really, I regret a lot of that. Um, a lot of my life that I can't get back, but no, it's been fantastic. It's not the path that's taking me to 10 million or hundred million. Being a landlord is not the way that I'm gonna to get to the next level. That's in buying businesses. That's in being an investor, keeping my money moving for me. At my wealth level currently, I can make way more just being smart by getting one or two or three or 5% more return on my investment than I can trying to manage you know, active stuff where I'm getting paid basically for time. I don't wanna trade my time for money anymore. I'm done with that. And landlording is trading your time for money. Renovating properties yourself is trading time for money and that's not something I'm interested in. So great question, I like that one, that was a good one. I'm gonna pick another random question here. Um, 
My friend's lawyer charged $950 for originating a HELOC loan and didn't itemize any of the charges. What seems unacceptable? Or that seems unacceptable. What do you think? So typically to register a mortgage, like I, when I refinance my property, my lawyer charged me between 500 and 1,000 bucks. Very common. Um, there are fees associated with paying mortgages on properties. It is what it is. Um, it'd be nice if it was itemized. It'd be nice if he had like his legal fee and his costs for all the different disbursements associated with that. If the lender had any fees, it'd be nice to see that broken down. You probably could ask for a breakdown. I'm sure they could give it to you, but as long as the fee structure is in line with you know competitors, who cares if it's 950 broken out or 950 all in one fee thing as a legal fee? Um, yeah. Future Wiz had a question here. I saw part two. Part one is just graduated, want to be a programmer. Entry-level positions are hard to get. Should I go desktop lower support and get paid, still a programming job on the side? Yes, do that. Um, take the day job. You can always quit it in three to six months, but it looks great on a resume to show that you're working in IT, to show you're working full-time and hustle on the side. Pretty soon you'll find you won't need that tech support job. You'll be escalated to a better role within the company or you'll find something else. But right now at the start of your journey future, it's about building a resume of credibility. That's why I worked full time. I would have loved to have not taken a shit job that I hated when I was 21 years old. I graduated from Richard Ivy School of Business and I took a job that I hated in consulting. And I did that to build the image so that I could get investing in real estate so I could eventually pivot into buying businesses and, and trading stock. But I knew that I couldn't just start at 21 doing what I loved. You have to sacrifice for a number of years to get to that end state. That's just the nature of it. Um, I wish it wasn't true, but you're, you could just do the program on the side and try to find something. But what you'll find future is you'll escalate through your career faster if you build a solid base. And it's all about previous experience. When I'm hiring, for instance, I'm looking for skill, but the only way I can tell how good someone is is by the projects that they've completed in the past. And so the more projects you can talk about, the more experience that you have you can share, the better you're gonna look to an employer, the better you're gonna look to another entrepreneur who wants to bring you on um, for coding or whatever. So definitely I would say that that's the way to do it. Don't give up on the programming, do that still on the side. In fact, at your day job, try to you know show that you have those skills, ask them those special projects. Even if you're just volunteering to code for the company, you might get the experience that you need um, picking up a side project you know, at the office. Uh, it's a misconception we are printing over the inflation rate, but my research shows quantitative easing, QE, is actually struggling to meet the inflation rate because of deflationary forces, unemployment. Yeah, I mean, the real challenge, I think, is when I talk about real estate prices being overinflated, right? And I talk about the buying power being drastically lower for the exact same house. Like here in London, Ontario, house prices are up almost 25% in surrounding areas, if you include Middlesex. 25% year over year in, in some pockets. That's disgusting. Employment's down, employment, unemployment's up. Employment average wages down. The economy's in the shitter and prices of real estate are up 25%. Why? Because interest rates are artificially low. Um, cost of borrowing's at an all-time low. And so the market is pricing in low interest rates for you know a long time from now, right? And I think that's unsustainable. I think that you can only print so much money to keep the money supply down, right? And I think that the economy in general, like if you look at the real unemployment rate, it's like, it doesn't include people on disability. doesn't think like un unemployment's at like what, 13, 14%, something like that. Doesn't include people on disability. Doesn't include people on um, Ontario Works. Doesn't include people who are seniors. Doesn't include people who are students. Uh, doesn't include people who are, who are actually looking but couldn't find anything for like a year. You're considered to have stopped trying after a certain point. Look at the actual data. A lot of people, like the Shadow Economics is a great, it's a great website. Um, I think it's called Shadow Economics. Someone look it up for me, I don't know. But um, they talk about the real unemployment rate. And like a third of Canadians are not working and like half of Canadians are either not working or underemployed. That's a problem. That is going to come to a head at some point. And I think that that's gonna impact you know, the market as a whole. And real estate is so strongly tied to how our economy performs in general. And again, I'm not an economist, and I don't study a lot of the data, so I'm talking out of my ass a little bit here, but my, my feeling, my, my gut feeling is that as, you know, and it can only go so, so much lower, but as interest rates have kind of creeped down to the lowest they've ever been in history, people are finding that they can just barely afford, right? Like we're seeing average houses here go for $600,000. That's unheard of. The local economy couldn't, shouldn't have been able to support that. But it is, right? Because interest rates are so low. If interest rates creep up a little bit, we're going to see prices should fall because people can't afford it. There's no affordability. Uh, there'll be basically two classes of people. There'll be those that 
or ultra rich who can afford, and then everyone else who can't. And so the divide is just, you know, growing. And that leads to eventually to unrest. And eventually it leads to um, political uprising and it leads to new laws being put in place that end up crushing the economy. <sighs> if you have plenty of cash to start off with, would you recommend starting off with cheaper properties or acquire a higher value property in the GTA? TC, historically speaking, you're much better off buying the smaller properties than you are buying the big property. From an appreciation standpoint, from a cash flow standpoint, um, just in general. The only con, I guess, that strategy that I can think of off the top of my head would be that it's more work to acquire multiple small properties than it is to acquire one big one. But the returns should be well worth the time to acquire the small ones. All right, 55 minutes. I think I did pretty good. If I missed any questions, which I know I did, I missed a few in the beginning there. Um, how do I approach a landlord, an owner to landlord for them? Andrew, good question. How do, how do you approach to be a JV partner? Read, go to a local real estate meetup group and say, hey, I'm a young guy. I want to get into property management. I'm really interested in it. Um, I'm really interested in doing renovations, et cetera, whatever, whatever is needed. I'll be the guy that takes down all of the stress and you know, I'm willing to work for free if I screw up. But if I succeed and I do well managing this property, would you be willing to go into a JV partnership with me and share say 25% of upside? And mo if you pick a landlord who's got like you know, 10 or 15 properties or like a, a decent amount of properties and they're tired, you can see in their eyes uh, if they're tired. That's the target market. That's not the young guy who's got two or three properties. He's just managing his own. You gotta find the guy who's got a lot of properties, who's tired. That's the guy you go ask that of. And just pitch that, right? They say, hey, I'm a young, hungry guy. I just wanna learn. I just wanna get invested in, in real estate. I don't need capital to get started, but I have a lot of energy that I can input. You know, do you think I could, you could try me out on one of your properties? You can share, don't give me 25% of your property yet. Just share some of your operating profit with me on this property if I can you know, exceed your expectations and manage it well. And I think that you'll prove yourself invaluable and you'll be able to manage more and more of their properties. Probably they'll want to go buy some properties with you and uh, support you on your journey. I think that's what will happen. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a great way to get invested in real estate in the start. It's something I wish I would have done earlier on. I waited 19 to get my second property and then my third property, I was, you know, several years before I started really buying properties. And for those couple of years that I was saving down payments, I could have just been partnering and putting my energy towards uh, building a brand and, and building all of a name for myself as someone that would have managed properties for these guys. And that's the key thing. Make sure you get a, a, don't work for a management fee, work for an equity stake. That's the key thing. Get everything on paper, get it all documented. All right, everyone, I think I've, I'm just gonna stroll through here. Uh, why not dump money into the S&P 500? It seems better than lending. No, it's not. Historically speaking, S&P should return on average about seven or 8%. Private lending, I'm getting 15. In the S&P 500, there's a much higher risk than lending 7% loan to value against Canadian real estate. So I think the risk to reward ratio of lending, because of who I am and what I know, I can leverage that to get a much higher return. There are people who do lending at 7%. Those people would be better off. If you're doing private lending mortgages, first mortgages at 7%, you are better off putting your money in the S&P 500, probably. Cash flow will be worse from the S&P 500, but the appreciation on average would be better than, because um, the S&P 500 has shit dividends, but. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, teach their own, right? It depends on what strategy you're coming at it with. I have a competitive advantage that I'm trying to exploit, and that's the idea is that use the competitive advantage to get a better return. Um, yeah. Thank you all so much for watching. For everyone who's tuned in tonight, I really appreciate it. For those landlords who are struggling, I'm here with you. I've been through the struggles. I've been doing this nine years now, and it feels like a hundred. Um, <laughs> that's, that is the journey of the real estate investor. Thank you all so much for, for giving me all your questions. And if I missed your question, I didn't answer it. Once I end this, copy and paste your question and paste it in the comments of the video and I will respond in the comments of the video. As always, the secret to unlocking a wealthier you, three levers, spend less, earn more, and then maximize returns on that difference. So try to spend as little as you can, try to earn as much as you can, side hustles, whatever, and then maximize returns on the difference. And then once you've built the wealth, then it's, it's inversed. Then the most important thing you can do is to maximize the returns of your money because the 1% difference is huge. Try to earn more money by you know, various strategies, trading, hopefully not trading your time for money anymore. Uh, and then the third thing being uh, spending less. And that's not as important. Once your net worth's in the seven figures, what you spend is less important than what you make return on your investment. But in the beginning of your journey, when you have 10 grand or 50 grand, who cares if you're getting a 7% return or 10% return? 
the difference between a 7% return and a 15% return on $50,000 is insignificant. You could make way more money in a weekend just trading your time for money. So it depends on where you are in your journey, but those are the three key levers. I hope you can play those levers to your advantage to build your wealth and to reach fire. It is the ultimate. That's, there's nothing better than freeing up your time to do whatever you wanna do for the rest of your life. Thank you everyone for watching and I'll see you next week, live at 7 p.m. on my YouTube channel. I've been consistently live for well over two and a half years now. I've never missed a week, even on vacation. So you can rely on me to always be here to answer your questions and do my absolute best to give you my honest, unfiltered opinion, sometimes uneducated opinion, but I'll give it anyway. Um, yeah, so with that, I'm gonna end the stream. I'll see you guys on Instagram at Mike Rosehart. Bye everyone.